Martinez Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining me as I discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, Oklahoma's seeing fewer COVID-19 cases and more vaccinations. We have what you need to know about where our state stands with the pandemic. Health reporter Dana Branham is back on the podcast. Dana, first I wanted to catch up with you about where Oklahoma is at in terms of COVID cases and hospitalizations, because there seems to be a glimmer of optimism here. So what are the numbers telling us right now? Definitely. Um, We're certainly seeing our cases start to slow down, and that's um, really promising. So our new cases, seven-day average across the state is about um, a little under 1,600, um, which is quite a lot lower than very end of August. That number was at like 2,800. So that's a big drop. Um, Very like encouraging to see. Um, Although that number was much, much lower, like below 100 one week um, over the summer. So it's still high, but we're seeing it come down, uh, which is promising. And then on hospitalizations, we're also seeing things come down, um, but just a little slower than um, how, how quickly cases have declined. So hospitalizations are three-day average today was a little over 1,000 people were hospitalized with COVID. That's statewide and there were 374 people in the ICU. So that is a lot less than kind of around that same peak that I was talking about at the end of August. Um, There were over 1,500 people in the hospital um, and close to 500 in the ICU. So certainly it's coming down, but ICUs were were stretched at that, um, they were stretched before they even hit 300 people in the ICU. what I've been hearing this week is that our, our cases are looking better, our hospitalizations are looking better, um, we're not out of the woods yet, and our ICUs are still really stretched. So that's kind of where we're at. There were some doctors who said maybe we should hold off on celebrating yet because we're coming from a peak in hospitalizations. So anything in comparison to that is going to look like an improvement. Are we at a stable point yet? I don't think we're at a stable point yet. Um, With particularly looking at ICU beds, um, I was asking some of the the doctors that we hear from often on COVID about how do we make sense of our cases are falling. We're seeing um, information from hospital systems that they have no ICU beds left or they have three or very small numbers of ICU beds left. Um, and so they were saying that our ICU capacity is still very strained. Our healthcare workers are really tired. Um, there are staff shortages like this. We're still in a rough spot, even though things are starting to look better. The system is stressed and there are people who are suffering because the system is overstressed. And I can't imagine, um, you all, the clinicians on the front line and the nurses and so on, who have to deal with the issues that they know they could do even more for some patients but are not able to do it because the volume and overload that we're seeing because of the you know level of the transmission you know if we could just get this across if we would really you know pull together and use masks and if we would up the vaccination rate it would greatly alleviate this issue 
And then obviously with ICU beds full, that impacts anyone else who might need an ICU bed that's not sick with COVID. How have those patients been impacted through all of this? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I know in in some cases, and sometimes it's um, on like a case-by-case, day-by-day, week-by-week situation, um, but some surgeries, procedures have had to be postponed. Um, and usually when hospitals talk about that, they call them elective surgeries. And I feel like that can be kind of a misnomer sometimes because they're not optional. Uh, they're just not emergencies. But um, like some, some health experts that I talked to about this, something that's not an emergency now, if you put it off for long enough, it can become worse or it can become an emergency down the line. So that's one way that kind of our overcrowded hospitals were affecting, I mean, this is affecting non-COVID, COVID, like everyone is feeling that crunch. Um, but there's also, um, I got some documents from the state health department recently that were showing how many states that Oklahomans have been sent to, to find a, a hospital bed. Um, and it is just staggering. I mean, people are being flown states away um, to just to find a bed. And then that leaves the question of how do they get back? Like, hopefully this person recovers. How do they get back home? And what is that? It makes me think, what does that cost? How does that affect their family? Um, so when the hospitals are overcrowded, it is affecting a lot of people, whether it's COVID or non-COVID patients. And then COVID deaths are still a concern too. What are we seeing in those numbers? Yeah, so um, very sadly, uh, last week, our state death toll um, rose over 10,000. Um, and our state's deaths have really picked up over the summer. Um, probably from August into September were some of the months we were seeing the most. Um, and those are still climbing pretty rapidly from what I've seen. Um, like as of today, um, we're at about 10,200. So we've seen quite a bit more just since last week when we hit that sad milestone. So from what I have been asking doctors, just because deaths lag after hospitalizations, which lag after positive tests, um, even when other numbers are starting to fall, those will still kind of look like they're on an upswing. So hopefully that does not um, last too much longer, um, but it's it's been very sad to see our, our state's deaths rise, how, how much they have this summer. One number that medical professionals are happy to see go up is the number of vaccinations. The state's already rolling out third doses and booster shots of the Pfizer vaccine, Who is eligible for those and why are those third doses recommended? So um, booster doses for people who got Pfizer, those are now recommended for um, people 65 and older, people who live in long-term care uh, facilities, so like assisted living or nursing homes, um, and then for people ages 50 to 64 who have an underlying medical condition um, that would kind of put them at higher risk for a bad outcome with COVID, um, they are also recommended to get a booster dose. So the CDC also um, opened up booster doses to people who want them in a couple of other categories. Um, 
that so one of them has to do with your occupation or where you live so if you are a teacher or a healthcare worker grocery store worker um, really any profession that's going to put you at high risk for um, being exposed to COVID or, or coming in contact with COVID um, you would be eligible to get a booster dose that is um, there's no like hard and fast list of who qualifies for that so if you kind of take stock of your own risk setting um, and, and the risks that your job puts you in, um, you can qualify for a booster dose by telling the health department or wherever you're going to get your um, booster dose that you're high risk. Um, and then the last group is just anyone ages 18 to 49 who has an underlying health condition, um, they also can get a booster dose. So the CDC kind of... Um, drew kind of a distinction between the um, those last two groups that I mentioned, the 18 to uh, 49 with health conditions and the frontline workers. Um, they said those people may get a booster dose based on their own, I think it's like individual risk and benefit. Um, and that kind of essentially means having a conversation with your doctor. Um, but then for the people over 65 um, or ages 50 to 64 with a underlying health condition, um, they said those people should get a booster dose. So they're kind of drawing a distinction between like, you really should do this and you can do this if you feel that it would be beneficial to you. Well, yeah, and keying off of that, it is interesting to look at how medically necessary a third dose can be for a person. Um, I did a story just this past week um, about a, an Oklahoma City teacher who received a kidney transplant. Uh, 10 years ago, he was normally healthy, but he he knew from, from his medical history that he could be at risk for a really severe case of COVID if he were to get it. Um, I spoke with him over the phone because he, he did catch COVID and he was actually hospitalized with it. But um, I, I also visited with his wife who said that she is sure, and, and he, the teacher as well, his name was Ted Hartley and his wife, Regina Hartley, both of them were sure that that third dose saved his life because, you know, organ transplant recipients have so much more trouble developing those antibodies that fight off COVID. Um, so it's just so interesting that when for those people, this is part of the process of continuously keeping themselves safe from COVID. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah. So um, I think it's, it's helpful to kind of like when you talk to health experts, the health department about it, they do draw a distinction between a third dose for an immunocompromised person versus a booster dose for those eligible who had Pfizer. So um, the way that it's kind of been explained to me is like, if you are immunocompromised, maybe, maybe you take medication or maybe you have a condition that makes it hard for your body to develop the antibodies that many people do develop when they get a vaccination. So by having that third dose, it's sort of just trying to give yourself the best chance possible of developing the antibodies that other people are going to get out, out of one or two doses. So, and the difference with that is that that is approved for Pfizer and Moderna. If, if you're immunocompromised and you've got one of those, 
Um, you only have to wait 28 days after your second dose to get that third dose. I did not know that. Um, we're seeing the eligibility for those third doses slowly open up and become available to more and more people. Um, so what's the process that's being followed to decide who should get a third dose and when? I mean, is that a similar rollout like when the vaccines first came to Oklahoma? I, I would say it's pretty different than how our first round of vaccine rollout went, because at that point, we didn't have a lot of vaccines. It was pretty scarce for everyone across the country. And so that's why we had those um, kind of categories of people who are going to be at highest risk, either like kind of like with the boosters because of their profession. So healthcare workers, they've got to be in contact with, with COVID patients all the time. They were very high up on the list. Older people who tend to have worse outcomes if they get COVID, also very high on the list because it was about protecting the most vulnerable people first when you have like such a limited supply. But now we have a lot of vaccines. Um, a lot of our, I know that our state has like, hundreds of thousands last I heard in, in its inventory. So there are plenty of vaccines to go around right now. So we don't have the scarcity situation that we did before. So if you're eligible for a booster dose, I mean, you can go get it now. It, it's not, um, you're not going to have to sort of wait through your different turns. So the third dose, unless you are, are very vulnerable and you it's planned out you know for you to get a third dose you know a month or two after your second dose excluding those people who've probably had a conversation with their doctor about getting a third dose uh, because it's it's a necessary step in their process for most the third dose is only approved for the Pfizer vaccine so if you receive Johnson and Johnson or the moderna vaccine, is it okay to get a third dose of Pfizer? Yeah, um, I think that's a question that a lot of people have because we got some information from the CDC just last week about here are booster doses if you got Pfizer and, and not a lot of information on what happens if you got Moderna or Johnson & Johnson. Um, and so Dr. Dale Bratzler, who um, gives weekly COVID updates, he's the chief COVID officer with the University of Oklahoma. He was asked about that today. Um, and was just saying he does not recommend people kind of mixing and matching to give get get a Pfizer booster if they did not get Pfizer as their kind of first vaccine regimen. I have a lot of people contacting me about, I got Moderna or I got Johnson & Johnson, can I go get the Pfizer booster? And I'm strongly encouraging people to wait. I don't think it's going to be that long before FDA will act and review the data on both Moderna boosters and Johnson & Johnson boosters, and we'll have firm recommendations for the dose, the interval, and uh, getting those boosters. From what I've heard, we'll have information somewhat soon on, on what boosters might look like for people who got Moderna or Johnson & Johnson, but something that Dr. Bratzler mentioned is that with, um, with Moderna, they're looking at maybe a smaller dose for a booster shot than what was initially given for those first two doses. So that, that would be another reason maybe not to mix and match. <laughs> Children age 5 to 11 could soon be vaccinated. That is really big development, especially when you look at um, potential COVID spread in schools and among families. What's the latest on that? Yeah, so I know that's something that a lot of parents um, would be really excited about. 
Um, so the latest that we've heard on that is that Pfizer has said their vaccine um, at a particular dosage is safe and effective for um, kids ages 5 to 11. So kind of there's a lot of steps that will now happen. Um, Pfizer has submitted some initial data to the FDA, which um, I imagine is, is looking over that. Pfizer has not yet asked for an emergency youth use authorization, which is how um, which is how the vaccines all first became available to us. So um, they have not yet asked for that. Um, once they do, it would be uh, probably weeks um, rather than months is what what I've been reading um, before they could say, okay, yes. Um, but it's kind of hard to predict a timeline on that because the FDA is going to want to look over a lot of data. And so if if Pfizer gives them the data that they, that, that they feel is uh, sufficient, then maybe that goes faster. If they need more, maybe it takes longer. Um, I, I know we had heard from a pediatrician this week, um, Dr. Ashley Whedon. Um, she's with OU Health. And she was saying that it could be um, maybe by Halloween, but it could also look closer to Thanksgiving. Those, those might be um, on the early side. But but yeah, definitely progress being made for um, vaccines for that age group. The timing is really important as pediatric cases of COVID have risen over the past two months due to the Delta variant with over 1 million children diagnosed nationally in August alone and over 200,000 of pediatric cases reported nationally last week. So in Oklahoma, 47.4% of the state's total population is fully vaccinated. Among those who are already eligible, so people age 12 and up, 56.4% are fully vaccinated. Obviously, that's an improvement from where we were a couple of months ago, but what's the opinion from health officials about how much farther we have to go? I mean, what kind of impact can vaccinations have on improving the situation in our hospitals? I mean, whenever I'm talking to a doctor I, I, or any really health leader, I'm usually asking like, okay, what, what did I miss? What else do you want people to know? And everyone will just be like, get your vaccine. Like, it's so important. We need more people to be vaccinated. Um, and so um, when, when the booster doses were approved last week, I was asking um, a state health department leader, like, is your focus still on getting more people those initial vaccinations? And she was like, absolutely. Like that is still the primary goal is to get more people who haven't had any vaccine doses or maybe only have one, um, get them completed so that they can be more protected. Um, and I think the way that that impacts our hospital systems and the way they've been so overwhelmed is that the vast majority of COVID patients in the hospitals are people who have not been vaccinated. Um, they are often the ones who are going to get sick enough that they'll need a hospital bed or an ICU bed where, in, and we hear a lot about breakthrough COVID cases. Those certainly happen, um, but they don't happen nearly as much as, as cases of people who did not get vaccinated. The, those numbers are still way different. Um, and the vaccine is just what's going to keep you from, in most cases, getting really sick and staying out of the hospital. So yeah, we're not we're not there yet. <laughs> um, 
And I think there's, it's kind of important to know that there's a lot of variation county to county in how many people have been vaccinated. Um, like in Oklahoma County, um, that number of, it's like adults who have had at least one vaccine, it's almost 80%, which is huge. Um, and then you look at some of the, the counties that are at the bottom of that, um, like Dewey County is the lowest one that I saw. And that number is like 33%. So it, there's a huge difference in in vaccinations county to county. So we're not not where we need to be um, is, is what I keep hearing. It's just we, we want to see more people being vaccinated. I know the state health department said that this week, um, wanting to see more people to be vaccinated so that we can hopefully keep seeing this downward trend that we're seeing. Gotcha. Well, Dana, thank you so much for bringing us all up to speed. This is such an constantly evolving COVID situation. So it's always good to hear a little bit of good news with also a dose of where we are in reality. So thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on that. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us this week. This podcast is possible because of the Oklahoman subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. You can read these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.